In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now, and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady, seat of wisdom, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. A very good evening, my dear brethren, to our Wednesday evening talk. And we're on to part six, would you believe, of our mini-series, which concludes next week, actually, on the liturgical spirituality of Dom Gerard Calvé. And we're going to look through uh, this book, The Four Benefits of the Liturgy. As far as I'm aware, it doesn't indicate who the author is. Of course, it says a Benedictine monk. But um, it's based on a lecture on a Tergian side, actually, delivered by Dom Gérard uh, in the first colloquium of the CL. So an international étude liturgique in 1995, and it was published as a booklet 1996 in French, and a little bit later in this English edition. Um, you recognise, you know, having gone through this other book was available in English, the spirit of the liturgy. Um, you recognise certain topics and themes where Dom Gerard talks about where he says of the four benefits of the liturgy, but you also see new, um, some new elements uh, and also certain element, older elements which I suppose are given greater clarity in this lecture, which was, which was to an audience of priests, religious and lay people. So it wasn't in the intimacy of the monastic chapter room that this conference is given. But in a sense, he's taking the, his, the type of spirituality and knowledge of liturgy and he's taking it to a much wider audience deliberately. Um, of course, the conferences that he wrote in the monastic conferences were intended really primarily for the monks and then later uh, they were published. So let's see what uh, Dom Gerard says about what he calls the four benefits of the liturgy. So this is his introduction. <clears throat> the young people who come and retreat to the monastery, they often wonder why we give so much importance to the liturgy uh, in our monastic lives. One of our novices now a monk and a priest who underwent harsh trials during his novitiate supplies the answer. One day he confided, I would not have persevered in my vocation if God had not, by the grace of the Holy Liturgy, given me a helping hand each day during the course of the year. This, to a greater or lesser extent, is an experience shared in all our monasteries. In the very depths of our souls, the liturgy works a sort of seductive charm. Day after day, a voice makes itself heard with a sweetness and an aptness which cannot be mistaken 
enlightening souls from within by a succession of light touches. From this we can see that the liturgy is essential to the monastic vocation. It is a natural unfolding of the grace of baptism. If there is an initial happiness in realising oneself eternally incorporated into the family of the children of God, there is also another happiness, that of becoming an exalter of the divine glory and of receiving, as if in advance, some ray of this light from above. It is in this way that the monk, by means of symbols, signs, sacraments and sacramentals, enters into the jubilation of the church through the sacred drama of the age-old liturgy sung in Latin to the melodies of Gregorian chant. If it were necessary to sum up all the benefits that daily participation in the public prayer of the church brings us, we would distill them down to four essential points. And here are the four benefits of the liturgy. First one, the continual recalling of the transcendence of God, the attractive power of liturgical beauty, the sense of the church, the education of the inner man. <clears throat> Let us look, my dear brethren, then at the first of these benefits, the transcendence of God. Man is only truly himself when he adores, says Dom Gerard. Adoration is the sign by which the creature identifies himself and performs his primary function. Here some sister adorers, I think of um, the, of the Benedictines of Tyburn um, adoring our blessed Lord and Holy Eucharist. For thousands of years, humanity has blindly groped, says Dom Gerard, for God, and despite unimaginable errors, it has invariably shown itself loyal to the austere duty of adoration. Perhaps man often combined plenty of servile fear in his approach to the divinity, but there was all the same the humble recognition of a bond of dependence where not everything rang false. The religion of antiquity had its favour that it was still waiting. One remembers the famous episode of the altar dedicated to the unknown God, of which St Paul makes use in order to enter into dialogue with the Athenians. That's in the book of Acts of the Apostles, chapter 17, verse 23. It would seem that God prefers to be adored without being known, than to be known without being adored, because in the latter case, we would be dealing with a false knowledge, with a belittled and mistaken idea of the divinity. One recognises, of course, in this all the drama of the modern world. So how does one define adoration, says Dom Gerard, and he defines it this way, he says, in the broadest sense, a free and loving submission of the whole being 
to the divine transcendence by which the believer recognises the sovereign rights God has over his creature. But Revelation adds to this a new understanding that represents something of a watershed in man's concept of God. It says, firstly, the idea is supernatural. The divinity now ceases to appear as a superior force situated at the summit of the forces of nature. Instead, the divinity is situated on a plane infinitely superior to the forces of nature. We must not allow this word to become banal, says Dom Gerard. Supernatural is not a synonym for unusual or for marvellous. It refers to a reality which is infinitely above the natural concepts of sanctity that man is capable of having. The word sanctus means separated. Our Lord speaks forcefully of this in the Gospels. You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. That's from St John's Gospel, chapter 8, verse 23. Following on from this, the second effect of Revelation is that this God, three times holy, reveals himself as Father. Far from crushing or terrifying, he raises his creature to the dignity of a son. Adoration does not exclude tenderness, then, such is the power of the liturgy. Forgetfulness of God's transcendence has plunged the world into a tragic situation. Beginning, it is the beginning of that great apostasy, says Dom Gerard, announced by the scriptures. The state of the world below, however, is worse than that of antiquity. Its rejection of God makes it the world of refusal than just the world of expectation. The present world is dying because it rids itself of the supernatural. How true is that, my dear brethren? The cult of man, social hypertrophy, the affirmation of self. Who can pretend that this naturalism has not entered into modern man's manner of prayer. What does Dolger mean by that? Well, he goes on to explain, he's talking really about aspects of the modern literature, with a sort of, um, you know, to some extent it is centred on man and the face, priest face and the people and so forth. He says it appears under the most varied forms, a raging hunger for novelty, an adaptation, the invasion of modern music and vulgar language, lack of education which drowns the unchanging prayer of the Bride of Christ in that ever-rolling stream which is the sensibility of the day, and finally, creativity which is one of the sublimest forms of human pride. We know what Ken Ratzinger said about that. In short, modern man gives in to the temptation to adapt religion to man, instead of doing what the church has tried to do down the ages, to adapt man to religion. Gosh, that's such a fundamental 
thing, really, isn't it? Um, we've witnessed that last 50 years, so much adaptation to the so-called mentality of modern man. Instead of trying to bring modern man to God, to Christ, to the liturgy, you know, we've got guitar masses and all sorts of things. Nothing wrong with the guitar, of course, in its proper context, but we need things capable of, capable of raising our hearts and minds to Almighty God in the sacred liturgy and of appreciating what the sacred liturgy is to adapt man to religion. Text continued. Turning our backs resolutely on these naturalistic tendencies, it should be easy to see that liturgical expression, because it transcends the fashions and particularities of time, and place is in essence and by God's design, says Dom Chenard, perfectly adapted to that which man carries most profoundly and essentially within himself, the instinct for the sacred and the thirst for adoration. So there is a desire for God within us all. And that which never mounts up towards God will never descend towards God. So we're just sort of conscious of ourselves and, and you know, not really bothered about anybody else around, around us or not really bothered about the greater questions of life and why there's life, why we are here, uh, how we got here and about creation, about the redemption, about Christ, that we can never you know, descend towards God as a sort of um, spiritual blindness. He that is of the earth, of the earth he is, and of the earth he speaketh. That's John in his Gospel, chapter the third, verse 31. The language of the liturgy has to come down from God before we can expect it to make us ascend toward him. Again, we see a candle rat singer, you know, that first and foremost is and what the liturgy is. As a remedy for this deviation, says Dom Jonah, the church offers us the theocentrism of a prayer. As you can see here, altar priests and faithful must turn in a spirit of adoration towards the infinite majesty of God. Our liturgy is essentially about adoration. The mass facing the people is largely incapable of expressing this. And here we can see um, a direct influence of the theology of Cardinal Ratzinger, of the thinking of Cardinal Ratzinger on the liturgy. And he's here, Dom cites Cardinal Ratzinger. There is a danger, says Cardinal Ratzinger, this is from the Ratzinger report, there is a danger when the commutarian character tends to transform the assembly into a closed circle. It is necessary to act with all one's strength against the idea of an autonomous and self-sufficient community. The community must not enter into dialogue with itself. It's a collective force turned towards the coming Lord. The readers of, now this is a controversial part, I think, of the talk of Dom Gerard's conference uh, paper. 
Um, some would be for it, some would be no doubt against it. But I'll read it in any case. The, the readers of the Epistle and the Gospel, you see it in the Holy Mass there, we've got the um, Psalm High Mass with the, the deacon. He's actually became a gospel facing towards the people, towards the, um, the monastic community. I think that's what it is. So the readers of the Epistle and the Gospel stand facing the faithful who listen to them. This used to be practiced in France in particular. What could be no more normal? But then at the beginning of the sacrificial part of the Mass, the celebrant goes up to the altar and turned towards the thrice holy God, he always the propitiatory victim. At the Teigitur, illustrated in this missal, the priest lifts up his eyes towards the cross and makes a deep reverent and adoring bow. He is turned towards the east, towards the crucified Lord, who is also the Lord of glory, because it is from the east that the Son of Man will return, surrendered by angels with great power and great majesty. This facing uh, towards the east has a second aspect. Each morning the celebrant turns towards the rising sun, the most beautiful cosmic image of the risen Christ, eternally begotten of the Father, and unceasingly and victoriously reborn in the hearts of the baptised. The silence of the canon, when it follows on from the chant of the choir, is a silence of adoration, where the created word disappears before the Creator. The first benefit of the liturgy then is its theocentrism. And then here Don Gerard cites Louis Boyer, who we've come across before in our talks. Boyer said, How greatly it is to be desired that Christianity should once more come to discover this primary meaning of the Mass. It's theocentric meaning and the reorientation of the whole of mankind, of the whole universe, towards its true centre, this universal return, wrought in Christ crucified and ascended up to heaven. This resumption of all things an immense flood of divine love, flowing back finally in filial love towards its source, the Father. That's in his, uh, the meaning of the monastic life. There's the, the second benefit of the liturgy, which is the attractive power of liturgical beauty. But, says Dom Gerard, adoration does not imply annihilation. The beauty of the sacred rites and noble souls it elevates them by exercising over them the sweet attraction of heaven. Real tradition is not sad. And he says Sunday Masses at the Abbey show this clearly. For two hours no one, neither infant nor adolescent, shows any signs of impatience. Why? 
McNabb, a historian of religions, gives us the response. He says that one enters the church by two doors, the door of intelligence and the door of beauty. The narrow door, he says, is that of in, in the intelligence. It is open to intellectuals and scholars. The wider door is that of beauty. And then Dom Gérard cites Henri Chalier in his L'Art de la Pensée. So he said the same in, in the same vein as McNabb. It is necessary to lose the illusion that the truth can communicate itself fruitfully without this, that splendour that is of one nature with it, which is called beauty. We discussed that, I think, in a previous talk about beauty and truth a closer aligned together. Text continued. The church in her impenetrable mystery as bride of Christ, the, the curios of uh, glory, has need of an earthly epiphany at his manifestation, accessible to all. This is the majesty of her temples, the splendour of her liturgy and the sweetness of her chants. Take a grip, says Dom Gerard, Japanese tourists visiting Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris. There's a picture of Notre Dame in the happier days before the terrible fire is currently undergoing restoration. So if you could imagine the restored church and these Japanese tourists are just coming in, or any tourists, I suppose, uh, any, or any tourists from Western Europe, perhaps, they look at the height of the archways, the splendour of the stained glass windows, the harmony of their proportions. Suppose that at that moment, sacred ministers dress in offered velvet copes enter in procession for solemn vespers. The visitors watch in silence. They are entranced. Beauty has opened its doors to them. Because here we come from Japan, there are very few Christians in Japan. And so all this would be maybe strange to them. And they'd be struck though with the beauty, indeed, certainly with the beauty of the liturgy. And this is a very interesting point made by Dom Gerard. Now, the Summa Theologica of St. Thomas Aquinas and Notre Dame in Paris are products of the same era. They say the same thing. But who among the visitors has read the Summa of St. Thomas? The same phenomenon is found at all levels. The tourists who visit the Acropolis in Athens, we see here, are confronted with a civilization of beauty. But who among them can understand Aristotle? And so it is with the beauty of the liturgy, says Don Gerard. More than anything else, it deserves to be called the splendour of the truth. It opens to the small and the great alike, the treasures of his magnificence, the beauty of psalmody, sacred chants and texts, candles, harmony of movement and dignity of bearing. And this is this, the pontifical, psalm pontifical high mass at the opening of the apostolate here uh, in Shrewsbury. With sovereign art, the liturgy exercises 
a truly seductive influence on souls, whom it touches directly even before the spirit perceives its influence. But it is a delicate art, diametrically opposed to a certain kind of post-concilia liturgy, rendered opaque and boring thanks to its taste from the banal and the mediocre to the point of making one shudder. And that's a quotation from the Ratzinger Report. And to continue, we also fear the breed of activists who meddle with the liturgy by introducing novelties in order to render it more attractive. It is once more Cardinal Ratzinger who warns us, the liturgy is not a show, a spectacle requiring brilliant producers and talented actors. The life of the liturgy does not consist in pleasant surprises and attractive ideas, but in solemn repetitions. Let me stay on with this picture for the moment because uh, Dom Girard um, wants to say something a bit more about solemnity. He says, although, well, above all, you must not confuse it with decorum. Far from weighing us down, the solemn nature of the rites um, is designed to express clearly the brilliance of the supernatural. As long as it has reached a certain uh, loftiness, all sacred literature tends by means of ritual to raise us above the banal and the everyday, not for the sake of an ascetic goal, but to show the faithful that the action taking place comes from God. This majestic unfolding of the liturgy has no other end. It signifies that something heavenly comes to touch the earth. St Gregory the Great, the great Benedictine Pope of the 16th century, wrote in his dialogues, At the hour of the sacrifice, the heavens, on hearing the voice of the priest, open in this mystery of Jesus Christ. The choirs of angels are present. That which is above joins with that which is below. Heaven and earth unite, visible and invisible, are made one. The solemn worship, the solemnity of worship, says Dodgera, is an integral part, integral part of the Catholic liturgy, and has to be cultivated as an element of its very message, always in the condition that this solemnity does not degenerate into pomposity and affectation. It's not just dressing up in lace just for the sheer um, pleasure of it or whatever. It's what that represents, that beauty, that solemnity. It points away from ourselves into the great mystery of God. Adornment, above all, succeeds most supremely when it blends in so well that it is in itself forgotten. That's an interesting observation because I've heard it said once. I remember a certain church that certain statues were set up by the side of the tabernacle. I think they were adoring angels, and people, the person was very critical. You know, we're not concentrating on these angels, but that's good. They blend into the background. The angels in heaven, 
majestic than they are, blend into the background of Almighty God. Accusations of triumphalism, says Dom Gerard, are an insult to the joy of the poor who love to see greatness exalted. I think back, my dear brethren, to, oh, we could probably replicate this up many times uh, to, the, to the Franciscan Church when the God was in Glasgow, to the Pugin Church. Uh, it wasn't only rich benefactors who, who were very good in using their money uh, to build churches so that people could come and worship, and, but also the poor at times, um, you know, they gave their money and sacrificed uh, to build churches and you know, and individual families, of course, who had money and wealth or enough to build a forest, piece of stained glass or chalice or what have you. The poor really do, the ordinary people really do love to see greatness exalted. That is their treasure. It points towards God and their Catholic faith. It's a really terrible insult to think that it would be otherwise. And here again, says Dom Gerard, Cardinal Ratzinger's thoughts on the matter. Quotation, again, from the Ratzinger report. There is no trace of triumphalism in the solemnity with which the Church expresses the glory of God, the joy of the faith, the victory of truth and light over error and darkness. The richness of the liturgy is not the richness of some priestly caste. It is the richness of all, including the poor, who in fact desire it and are by no means scandalised by it. We might want to say as well that um, the liturgy is regarded as a, as a foretaste of, of heaven, and therefore we have the, in heaven we have the, the church triumphant we talk about. So it's a glimpse of that as well, but it's not triumphalism in the earthly sense. There can, says Dom Gerard, hardly be a more enlightening example of the power which the, the beauty of the liturgy has to effect conversions than that contained in the richly evocative Chronicles of Nestor. It's about uh, the man who wrote about the um, I think about um, the history of the world and his chronicles. Nestor was an individual um, who lived in the Middle Ages. And in these chronicles, he tells us how Prince Vladimir of Kiev, who's still a pagan, wanted to worship the one God and so listened to the Muslims, to the Jews and the Greeks, each of whom came to show him their religion. Uh, he sent a delegation of ten men to go and see with their own eyes how each of the groups practised their liturgy. It's very interesting. Having visited various mosques in Bulgaria, they arrived in Constantinople. The Byzantine Emperor Nestor tells us, this is an illustration of Nestor, sent a message to the Patriarch saying, Some Russians have come with the intention of studying our religion. Prepare your church and your clergy. Put on your pontifical vestments so that they will see the glory of our God. 
The patriarch called for his clergy. They celebrated the solemnities according to custom. They burned incense and the choir sang. The emperor went to the basilica with the Russians and had them seated where they had a good view. Then he showed them the beauties of the church, of the chant, of the service conducted by the bishop and the ministry of the deacons and explained to them the divine liturgy. Having returned to the country, they told their prince, first we visited the Bulgarians and saw how they worshipped in their temples. They stood upright without a belt. They bow, they sit down, looking all around like men possessed. And there's no joy among them, oh dear me. And uh, then he says, then, uh, then we went on to Greece. And they led us to the place where they worship their God. From that moment on, we did not know if we were in heaven or on earth. There is no other sight like it here below. And there is nothing of such beauty. We simply cannot describe it. All we know is that it is there that God lives amongst men. And their worship is more marvellous than in the other countries. So Dom Jarrah says that the, the message is not difficult to grasp. The liturgy does more than just um, describe to us the wonders of our heavenly homeland. It pushes ajar the doors of the kingdom of heaven. Man enters there body and soul. He sees it, he hears it, he smells it. Everything speaks to him of God. But how many of our contemporaries and even alas how many sons and daughters of the church know that they have here the golden key to paradise? It brings to mind that often trotted out quote of uh, Frederick Faber, uh, the London Oratory, yeah, the Mass is the most beautiful thing this side of heaven. It's very true. So next week we conclude uh, our reading of the four benefits of the liturgy and we conclude our mini-series on the uh, liturgical spirituality of Don Gerard Calvey. Let us conclude in prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, as now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen.